This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We are learning more about the Easter Sunday at the and left hundreds others injured. Authorities say nine suicide bombers from a little-known group, the National Toheith Jamath, targeted three churches and three hotels. They say the men and one woman who did this were from educated, middle-class backgrounds and grew up in different parts of the country. The Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the attacks, but it's unknown how much they were involved with the group. At least 60 people have been arrested so far, and the government is apologizing for not responding to intelligence on this group sooner. Suicide attacks are not new to Sri Lanka. During its 26-year civil war, Tamil Tiger militants helped develop the suicide bomb vest and use it hundreds of times. That war, by the way, ended in 2009, and the country has been peaceful in the decades since. To take a look at how this terror attack has impacted the country and what the rippling effects might be, we are joined on the phone by Dr. Henrik Seiz, who is a research professor at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. He's also a professor of peace and conflict studies at Bjorknes University College and a member of the Norwegian Nobel Committee. And also joining us uh, right now, Andrew Perumal, who is an associate professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and will be joined shortly by Marianne. And Mohanraj, who is a clinical associate professor of English at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Henrik, Andrew, great to have you with us today. Thank you both for uh, starting off the show with us. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank good you. Thank you. Henrik, I, I think many people are, are wondering right now about the reports of this being retaliation for the New Zealand mosque attacks. Ex- can you take us through how that perception might be a play here? Well, I think it's natural to think that way when you have something as dramatic as what happened in Christchurch, and then you have this attack which seems to come out of nowhere. It's very hard to explain it clearly based on local Sri Lankan uh, uh, conditions. And therefore, as we are searching for explanations to what this could be, uh, one of the things that has come up is exactly this, that this is part of uh, uh, something that's not really Sri Lankan, it's international. And one of the ways in which uh, some of these bombers have been motivated to do it is as part of such uh, revenge. Now, it's early days yet, so it's a lot that we don't uh, really know. But uh, it's true that that's one of those stories out there. Andrew, I mentioned a little bit of the history around Sri Lanka and some of the violence that has been there in the past. Can you give us your perspective uh, about how that part of Sri Lankan history played out and this last decade, which, as we mentioned, has been relatively violence free? Uh, definitely, uh, especially given how little communal violence we have seen over the last decade, there were two important flare-ups against Muslims, one in 2014 and another just a year ago last March. I think that the country has been going through the process of trying to figure out how to move forward. And in many ways, the recovery from the war that ended 10 years ago Uh, has been slow. The rehabilitation process has been weakened on many levels. Even if we look back at how the uh, rehabilitation camps persisted for much longer than they should have, I mean, the country has been trying to deal with this. Um, But then once again, when we see how much political instability the country has been experiencing just over the last six months, I think that in many ways it is 
easy to not deal with it. Uh, the current president was elected into power in 2015 with the idea of bringing in a new era of addressing issues regarding uh, corruption and abuse of power at the highest levels. And even in terms of trying to deal with some of the constitutional crises that were coming up towards the end of the previous presidency. But what we've seen over the last two years is that a lot of those have stalled. There was lots of momentum early on as soon as he came into power. But there has been very little movement in the last couple of years. We're also so, now... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. I'm sorry. Oh, no. So my only point is that the issue then changes to if we're not going to address this systemically, uh, does this become the new concern for Sri Lanka? We are now joined also by uh, Marianne Mohanraj. Marianne, great to have you with us. Thank you. And, and if you can, give us your insight, uh, similar to what Andrew just said, about the, the history of Sri Lanka with violence and, and where that country is right now. And also, if you can discuss uh, as well uh, the the statements by the Sri Lankan government that this was there was information out there that was basically missed by the government and not acted upon. So thank you for having me. Um, I'm glad to be here. Uh, Andrew, uh, I think, did a, a great job of covering some of the recent history um, and where we are at the moment. I'll, I'll go back for a little bit. I don't know how much context your listeners have. Sri Lanka is unusual, I think, in that it was a multi-ethnic society for a very long time, for thousands of years. Um, and you can still see that even in the architecture you see Buddhist temples that coexist with Hindu temples uh, as you're traveling around. So, you know, after colonialism, um, tensions were exacerbated um, that erupted into riots um, at various points. And then the uh, um, Black July in 83, summer of 83, um, which was when I had already emigrated, but many of my own family who are Sri Lankan Tamils um, fled as refugees to Canada and so on. So we then had many years of conflict and, and civil war. And when peace descended, the government at the time had a, a fairly heavy hand in their approach um, and kept a strong militarized presence in the conflict areas in the north and the east, which were primarily Tamil. And I think the concern now is We've had 10 years of peace. We've had a president who um, was elected, as Andrew says, to, to try and heal some of these wounds of war and help the country move forward. But, um, uh, sorry, Prime Minister, and the, and the, and going, but, but there has been challenges to that. There have been um, an ongoing, um, you know, attacks against minority communities, such as the Muslims. And I think real questions about how committed uh, the government is to um, to a path of, of peace and, and peaceful coexistence. Uh, it's you know I ran for office two years ago and it's it's for local office and it's very easy to um, sell the voters on certain types of narratives. Um, right. We're going to be tough on crime. We're going to be tough on the terrorists. We will um, we'll lower your taxes. There there are things that people want to hear. And it's, I think, um, the, the, the real worry right now for me is how the government is going to react to this incident 
um, like I said, dual worry. One is one is, of course, whether there will be any more along these lines. But but it's a real concern that the government will react by putting in a host of supposedly anti-terror mechanisms that um, end up curtailing freedoms and slowing down this uh, unification conversation that's been happening as everyday Sinhalese, Tamils, you know, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, Muslims, Christians um, try to live together in peace and harmony. You know, the I, my parents would talk about how when Sri Lankan New Year came around, you would everyone would make their own special foods, um, but then would go to the neighbors and share it. And that is, to me, that's quintessentially what it was to be Sri Lankan. And that's what I think people there are hoping to get back to. Henrik, uh, take us in with your insight about what we could be potentially looking at for Sri Lanka and their reaction. And obviously one of the things that that they did in the wake of this was to shut down social media platforms uh, because uh, of a concern of, of disinformation being put out there. Uh, we don't know the long-term effects of that yet. We don't know how long that will last, this shutdown. We don't know what sort of effects this will have if people will find other ways of communicating through different social media platforms. But it's an interesting thing because one of the things we really see now in a number of countries is how these social media are uh, uh, contributing to, to polarization. Uh, when it comes to the longer-term uh, horizon for the wonderful country of Sri Lanka now, I really ache for for the country, I feel so with everyone who's uh, Sri Lankan, is whether we can find a way to build on all the positive things that have happened over the last 10 years. I was there just a few weeks ago, and you see the sort of optimism, not least in a lot of businesses. I also visited two colleges. You see a lot of the tourism going up. Uh, you see this pride in a nation that takes on a number of political and environmental challenges. Many things are you know, going in the wrong direction, too. You have uh, political polarization, but still you have this sense that things are going in the right direction. And then you have this huge setback. And the danger is that such a setback works as a kind of black hole. It draws all of the attention to it, which is natural because there is huge grief. There is fear. There is a need to make sure this doesn't happen again. Right. There is a need to investigate why this wasn't stopped, if it was possible to stop it. But the danger is that then we take our eyes off all those things that, that can be done, all of the positive things. When you look at, for instance, the relationship between Muslims and Christians in Sri Lanka, it's mostly been positive. Um, it's mostly been communal. And friendly, and the question is, how do you find back to that in a situation like this? And I think experience tells us that that is uh, that is really hard, unfortunately. A Andrew, that's Dan, a, yeah. Go ahead, Marianne. Dan, if I could just jump in, yep. I want to echo everything Henrik said, but just to that early point about social media, I was I was just there in December and met with various um, writer friends of mine who are very tech savvy, and there are people who are using VPNs, uh, virtual networks to get around the social media ban and who are communicating with the outside world, they are tremendously frustrated about the, um, the social media ban, even though they understand the initial reasoning for it and the, the spread of misinformation can be harmful. Rumors are flying. Um, at the same time, shutting down communication is always worrying, and especially this kind of open-ended, who knows when we'll be allowed to talk to each other again, um, is is a real matter of concern. And so if 
um, people are interested in looking into this more, I'd point you to Yudinjaya Vijaretna, who is uh, there in Sri Lanka, is um, something of an expert in this area um, and is accessible. But with Marianne, with some of the things you mentioned before uh, about this particular government, and it almost makes me feel like as as they are trying to lead Sri Lanka right now, that they are still trying to to find their way as well. And, and obviously, uh, you know, people make mistakes. Unfortunately, in this case, if these mistakes were made, it, it obviously has cost a lot of people their lives. Uh, but there is a, a a learning process, as you said before. It's one thing to say I want A, B, and C. It's it's another thing to actually get into office and actually do that as well. Yeah, and, you know, I think the some of the rumors I've seen flying about things like, well, there must have been an international contingent behind this bombing. Maybe, maybe not. There's, there's no real evidence one way or another. You see international groups claiming responsibility days after the fact with, again, no evidence to support it. There's, you know, a memo that comes in that, targets, you know, that names one specific local group, um, but is not independently corroborated. Um, I have to think that intelligence services are constantly getting warnings, constantly getting things sent into them. Um, And I do think it must be a, a process of learning which is a credible threat, which ones do we need to respond to quickly. Um, I do not want to dismiss the concern that, you know, which I'm hearing from you know, Christian friends of mine, my, my, well, I'm not religious myself, my family is Tamil Catholic, and we have many friends and relatives who are at those churches, um, that perhaps the government was paying less attention to a threat that was um, against Catholics rather than the majority groupings. Um, so there's, I'm not saying we should not criticize and we should not inquire, but I think we should be very careful um, to to not jump on things that sound credible without evidence. Andrew, what are the the, the longer term impacts uh, of having this type of a devastating event occur in Sri Lanka? As you mentioned, with having a, a decade's worth of, of peace at this point, what does this mean for the country moving forward? Especially some of the the economic components, which which is your background. Yeah, so I think that especially given how the country has weathered some of the big upheavals, but also even these uh, relatively small flare-ups a few years ago, I think that the economy is fairly comfortable shrugging a lot of it off, fortunately. Because even if we just look at tourism growth over the last decade, um, it rebounded very quickly immediately after the war ended in May of 2009. And then right now we've actually had something like a fourfold increase since that period. So even looking at, uh, for example, talking to a lot of relatives back in Sri Lanka, there's a lot of anecdotal stories about how uh, tourism seems to be down after um, the communal violence last March or even the political instability uh, at the end of the year. But it actually turns out that uh, there definitely may have been a shifting of the types of tourists we have coming to the country. But overall, month over month, we've been having substantial growth. Uh, right now, it's sitting at around 2.3 million having come in last year. Uh, and we also have been able to see that the overall receipts from tourism have grown dramatically. So as long as this does not 
um, become more frequent, I would think that, especially given the timing of this, so May and June typically, compared to the other months in the year, are relatively low months for tourism. Right. So if it doesn't persist beyond this, and the country also thinks about how to deal with these things uh, systemically, maybe there will not be any long-term impact. Marianne. But one thing I would, sorry, just like to yep. chime in about. Yep. So one complication, of course, is the comfort with uh, maintaining the use of the Prevention of Terrorism Act in Sri Lanka. Now, mm -hmm. while the war was going on, uh, minority groups were targeted using that act. And a lot of the hope from the minority groups, myself included, had been that the recent governments would do away with it, especially given the at least six, seven years of peace that we had had. And that hasn't gone away. And now we see it so comfortably uh, used to round up terrorists without any additional corroboration of the evidence. So I think yeah. there's lots of yep. bigger issues that could actually really drag down the economy in the long run. But I think this one event is not going to be the issue. Marianne? No, I agree. And, you know, we've seen this in the States, right, with the, the Patriot Act after 9-11. These, um, the, there tends to be a, um, a law and order correction after this kind of event that then um, often is very strong, very powerful, shuts down freedoms, shuts down communication. Um, and it's then really hard to walk that back um, because people people are frightened. And as long as they're frightened, it is um, hard to reach out your hand and say, no, I want to trust my neighbor. Um, this is someone I've known. This is someone who, you know, our kids go to school together. Um, and that's, that's I, I think, when I talk to everyday Sri Lankans now, this is what I'm hearing in the last few days is people are hoping to move forward, um, to go back to this peaceful, multi-ethnic society, very communally minded. And I worry that the government will react to the loudest voices um, and feel that they need to strong arm um, the populace. Right. But doesn't that also, Henrik, that, that really then brings forth the need to have a, a joint move forward between the community and the government so that everybody is thinking on the same page so that you can have the best outcome from a horrific event. There is a lot of will to do that in the Sri Lankan population. So uh, this is a huge challenge for the uh, politicians and religious leaders of Sri Lanka to manage to find a voice for this sort of togetherness. I remember in Norway when we had a horrific terror attack here in 2011, uh, one of the things that went right was exactly this uh, sense that the politicians had a basic message of, of unity, a basic message of finding back to what unites us. Now, admittedly, that was uh, a, an easier situation because the culprit was uh, apprehended quickly. He acted alone. You didn't have this sense of a constant state of emergency. We didn't have a constant state of emergency. But I still think there is something to learn from that. But adding to that, we must remember that while this is a Sri Lankan tragedy, and I, I, as I said, I really feel for and weep for this uh, fantastic country, it is also part of an international 
uh, dialogue in international crisis, uh, how uh, religion is used uh, to uh, vindicate violence, uh, how different groups are pitted against each other. And in some ways, you know, that this happened first in New Zealand with the terrible Christchurch murders and now in Sri Lanka with this has relatively little to do with New Zealand and Sri Lanka per se, but are expressions of a sort of dialogue that some extremists are trying to push. They want to create havoc. And we see that not just among extremists. We see it among some, even, even some seemingly mainstream politicians who, who push a dialogue of fear and division. And I think that's what we really need to respond to. Whether we are believers or not, whatever countries we are from, we have to find ways of having um, a sort of peaceful togetherness that can tackle these sorts of things, and not least to, to withstand this sort of polarization. Uh, we will see now quite a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment, which is directed against people who have never done this, who would never have done this. We will see a lot of essentialization of religion. We'll see, well, that's what, for instance, Islam is really like, or Christianity is really like, instead of seeing the reality in the world and the human beings behind uh, the faiths and, and, and faces. Uh, so I think that's uh, not just a Sri Lankan uh, challenge right now, but it's a, a global challenge in which we all play a part. But Marianne, how does that play out specifically in Sri Lanka? How do those elements come together, do you think? Well, you know, what I'm seeing on the message boards right now is I'm seeing Muslim friends frightened um, who are, are pleading for peace, pleading for people to understand that they are not part of some shadowy conspiracy, that this is not what their religion stands for. Um, what, what I do find heartening is, at least on some of the message boards, when one of those sort of uh, voices speaks out saying all Muslims are like this and they're all inherently violent, um, I am seeing a lot of Sri Lankan voices coming back and saying, don't be ridiculous, right? This is you know, think of your neighbors, think of your friends. Um, clearly, the actions of extremists of any religion, of any of any grouping, religious or ethnic grouping or, or otherwise, um, can't be held to be representative of what the majority of people think. And I think if if people will keep putting that forward, if they will, you know, the statements they've seen coming out from various groups um, saying that the important thing now is to continue to work on unity um, and not let ourselves be divided. This, this, you know, divide and conquer was a practice, a philosophy, a very effective practice of the colonizers, right? They would pit different groups against each other, and it made it much easier to stay in power. And that continues to be the case around the world. And that's what we have to be aware of and what we all have to resist. Andrew, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that I have personally been happy to see that there hasn't been um, instances of immediate retaliation against Muslims in the country, which I think would have been much easier to envision maybe even a year ago. So there has been, I think, some learning taking place over the last few years. And I think as the country hopefully continues to move forward, um, and politicians do not try to utilize these instances to uh, shore up their own bases. I think there, there might be enough positive out of this that um, maybe there's positive change. Thank you all for giving us your insight today. Greatly appreciated. Henrik, Andrew, Marianne, thank you again. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Dr. Henrik Seiz from uh, the Peace Research Institute Oslo, also Bjorknes University College, Andrew Perumal, who is with the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Marianne Mohanraj of the University of Illinois at Chicago. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.